Well, uh, it's an honor and privilege to bring you the Word of God today. And uh, please turn to Nehemiah. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. You know, David Duran did such a good job pronouncing all those wonderfully complex names last week. I almost asked him to read the passage for me today. But I decided it's time to take the training wheels off, Lesh. So uh, now we're going to read 1 through 15. And, and once we successfully get past the names... What we're going to be reading is a confession and repentance of sin. The the remnant of Israel, this small remnant, look around, this small remnant, uh, is going to be coming and confessing their sins before the Almighty God. And in verse 5, it says this, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. And we will do that just, uh, just that the same this morning. So please stand as we read Nehemiah 9, 1 through 15. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebani, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, Bethahiah, said this, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Here's where the confession formally begins. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Jebusite and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day, and you divided the sea before them. So they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses to your servant. Your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. The word of God. Please be seated. So we had a hard stop 
on uh, verse 15. And what we just read is just the first part of a confession and repentance of sin by this remnant of Israel. And Dean's going to be covering the last part of this confession next week. But already what we read, we see a rich confession. And today I want us to look at four elements that are in this confession. And so that's what we're going to be covering today. And those four are this. This confession contains a right view of God, a right view of man, ourselves, a right view of sin, and a right view of salvation. Now, now this is important how we view God because, and how we view these four things because how we view God will shape how we view ourselves, how we view sin, and how we view salvation. In other words, if God is small... We will have an inflated view of ourselves. We will have a small view of sin. And what's the point of salvation? Why is that even necessary? Now, the confession starts with the right view of God. And so this is what we look at this morning. Let's look at Nehemiah 9, 6. At the very beginning of this confession, you will see it says this, You are the Lord, you alone. Stop and meditate on that for a minute. Do we not stand in utter amazement at this? Does it not amaze us that as we sit in Sun Valley, in the classiest auditorium on the block, that in this small suburban town in AD 2014, that we come to worship the one true God? I mean, think through all of history, all of mankind, all the nations that have come and gone, and then just think of all the false gods man has not so cleverly created. Among others, the Egyptians had Ra, the Greeks, Athena and Zeus, Islam and Mormonism, they have a false god and a false prophet. Hindus have karma and too many gods to name. Buddhism, atheism, universalism, humanism, nationalism, all centered around idols and false notions of the truth, all centered around false gods. But here we are, gathered before the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all who are alive and well and worshiping their Lord and Savior this very moment. And it is this God who alone is the one true God. It is this God whom we confess and repent. He is the God of Elijah. You know Elijah. Elijah was the prophet in the Old Testament who made a bet with the devil's workmen, the prophets of Baal. And Elijah said, okay, we're going to settle this question about who is God. Go ahead, build an altar to Baal, and then I will build one to God. And then we will call out and see which God responds. And those false prophets danced and screamed to Baal in utter vain. And Elijah gave them plenty of good tips. You've got to hand it to him. He said to them, he said, uh, make sure you cry louder. I think Baal must be relieving himself. Too much processed food in his diet. I'm sure he doesn't mean anything by this. What's his Myers-Briggs personality profile? Is he an introvert? And after the prophets had drained out every last ounce of their credibility, which is about 10 seconds worth, it was Elijah's turn, and he cried out to the one true God. And the very God we are worshiping here today sent a fire down from heaven that consumed the altar with such authority and such power the people fell on their faces, crying out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This is the God in Nehemiah 9 is confessing to. This is the God Nehemiah 9 is confessing to. What about us? 
that we have a right view of God. When we are confessing our sins, are we doing so to the God of the Bible, the one true God? Or are we confessing to a God of our imagination? What's worse, making a God out of the sun or conjuring up one in your own mind? It's man's fallen nature to worship a God of his own making. Who is our God? If your God is so small, he is not able to break the dominion of sin in your life, he is not the God of the Bible. If he is a God that winks at our disobedience, he is not the God of the Bible. If he is a God whom we have an understanding with, it is not the God of the Bible. If it is a God whose love we are desperately trying to gain through our own false righteousness, we must run to the one true God of the Bible. When we confess, we must be confessing to the God of Scripture, for Scripture alone is the infallible source of truth on who this one true God is. That is why we're here today, pouring through Scripture. Scripture contains the truth about God and the truth about us. Nehemiah 9 continues with this right view of God. Look at verse 6. You, talking about God, made the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. When we are confessing our sin, we need to be aware that the God we are praying to is the very reason our hearts are beating. It's the very reason we're breathing. It's the very reason the sun shines, the earth is spinning, for the universe is being preserved this very moment by the Almighty God. And what should our response be to this? Think about what God says to Job. It says this in the end of uh, the book of Job. God asked Job this, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you, Job, commanded the morning since your days began and caused it to know its place? In other words, Job, are you the preserver of the universe? And Job's response has all the fruits of true confession and repentance. This is what he says. Listen, behold, I am of small account. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. I repent in dust and ashes. You see, when we have the right view of God, it leads to a right view of ourselves. God is holy. God is mighty. God is the preserver of all. Man, like Job says, is of small account, wicked and depraved and in desperate need of salvation. Oh, how man needs a savior. Nehemiah 9 shares this right view of man with Job when it says this in verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram. And brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. We must never forget that it was God who chose Abraham. It was God who condescended to man to enter into an everlasting covenant with him. An everlasting covenant where God promised to be Abraham's God and to his offspring after him. And this promise to Abraham was conditioned on God's righteousness, on God's nature, not man's. The confessor in Nehemiah 9 would agree with what we read in Psalm 8 when it asks, What is man that you, God, are mindful of him? God's covenant with Abraham demonstrates his infinite grace, 
His infinite mercy poured out on His chosen people. And we see here the right view of God and the right view of man. Thirdly, this confession and repentance in Nehemiah also has the right view of sin. Now we're going to see, particularly in the passage next week, this point. But let's set the stage, reading verse 13. You, talking about God, came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, the law of God. Right, true, and good. It was the law of God that was read before Israel at the very beginning of this chapter, pointing them to the truth and convicting them of their sin. You see, God's law isn't an evil, abhorrent thing. Psalms 119 speaks volumes to the Christian. It says this, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. The law of God is not evil or despotic. Mankind, it is us who are evil and depraved. We're the evil and depraved ones. We are the ones who trample and spit on what is good and righteous, what is holy and blameless. It isn't God's law that's the problem. It's man's sinful, rebellious desires that's the problem. Listen to Nehemiah 9, verse 9. You, God, saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt... You performed signs and wonders and divided the sea before them. By a pillar of cloud, you led them. Wow, all those miracles. After God had done all these miraculous works on behalf of Israel, what did the Israelites do the moment Moses was out of sight on Mount Sinai receiving what was good and right? They built a golden calf to flaunt their wickedness and rebellion. What would we have done? We might tell ourselves, well, if God sends fire down to light our bonfire at the property several weeks from now, well, then I'll repent. Or or if uh, he parted Lake Norman while we watched in lawn chairs on the bank, that would get me to my knees. That would be impressive. Or if he sent a plague and uh, pestilence to Washington, D.C., well, never mind. He's already done that. Anyone want to say amen on that? No. The, the, the point is, look at what God did for Israel. All the incredible and, and miracles and the giving of the law, what was true, what was right, what was good, and their unfaithfulness was galling. Are, are we better than Israel? Do, do we take sin seriously? When we confess our sin, is it just that? A confession? Or or is it followed by true repentance, a a turning from sin? How many idols do we have stored in our heart? Money, food, selfishness, alcohol, pornography, pride, unbelief, and, and how quick we are to point blame to the law of God for infringing on our rights to sin instead of recognizing that the sin we hold so dear leads to death and destruction. We must never underestimate the seriousness of sin. In light of God's law, which is good, right, and true, and in light of who God is, holy and blameless and wonderfully good, 
as Christians, when we sin, we are being robbed of the true joy and peace and rest found in God alone. The right view of God leads to the right view of man, which leads to the right view of sin, which leads to the right view of salvation. The right view of salvation. Look at uh, the end of verse 8. And probably the sweetest verse in this passage. Talking of our God. And you have kept your promise. For you are righteous. Isn't this an ironic and humbling statement? Think about when this was written. This confession acknowledges the truth. That even though Israel disobeyed, even they rebelled time and time again, even though they were humbled to the point of being taken away to a foreign land, their own temple burned to the ground, their walls shattered to bits by a pagan king, that here in Nehemiah 9 we find a remnant of God now worshiping beside a rebuilt temple with freshly built walls around them, confessing and repenting, Not because they kept their promise, but because God kept his. What a God we serve. How does this apply to us in 2014? How does it apply to us here as we're gathered today? The God we worship is still the one true God, the Alpha and the Omega Man, in his futility, still thinks he is the center of the universe. He isn't. Our sin is still heinous in the eyes of a holy and perfect God, and his law is still good and right. But I hope we realize with every fiber of our being that our God still keeps his promise For unlike the remnant in Nehemiah, we now know the name of the one who was promised. We now know the name of our great atoner and savior. And it is Jesus Christ, the son of God. And it is in his name that we confess our sins. It is in his name that we stand righteous in the sight of God. And it is in his name, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are united to the triune God so that we can repent And walk in righteousness. It is in Christ's name that we can confess and repent. And then say no to sin. No to our flesh. No to worldly temptations. And yes to salvation in Christ. And when we sin. Because we will. Don't fool yourself. It is to Jesus we run. We we, we don't marinate in our sin. We flee from it. We fight it. We repent from it. By the power of the Holy Spirit. For we who are in Christ are no longer in rebellion. We are not in rebellion to God. But we can now proclaim now and forever. Bless the Lord God. Whose name is exalted above all blessing and above all praise. Bless the Lord God, whose name is exalted above all blessing 
and praise. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the Spirit would stir our hearts to true repentance so that we may delight and experience all the richness of your grace and peace. We thank you that you had mercy on us, Lord, that you loved us enough to send your Son to die in our place and gave us your word that we may meditate on it day and night. We love you, God. It is in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out the service, worshiping the one true God.